a wonderful privilege we enjoy as Christians to be able to peer into the Scriptures and find therein some great teachings that can impact our lives. As you and I open our Bibles, we recognize that these are letters and books written to individual Christians or to congregations. And when we're studying the book of Philippians, we recognize that the Apostle Paul was writing this great congregation at Philippi, instructing them on some very important principles that would guide them through their lives and make them what God wanted them to be. This morning, as a way of introduction, I'd like to begin again with a question. Who is responsible for your salvation? Who is responsible for your salvation? To begin with, I want to go to the book of Jeremiah, to chapter 8, and I want to pick up with verse 19 and go through to verse 22. And I want you to listen carefully to the cry that Jeremiah will give. Listen. The voice. The cry of the daughter of my people from a far country. Is not the Lord in Zion? Is not her king in her? Why have they provoked me to uh, anger with their carved images? With foreign idols? The harvest is past. The summer has ended. And we're not saved. For the hurt of the daughter of my people, I am hurt. I am mourning. Astonishment has taken hold of me. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then is there no recovery for the health of the daughter of my people? Jeremiah looks around, and I want to, again, point you to verse 20. The harvest is ended, the summer is, or the harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we're not saved. And he asks the questions that you find here in verse 22. Is there no balm? Is there no medicine in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Is there no one who will help God's people make it? You cannot blame God. If you are not saved, you cannot look at God and say, God, it's your fault. In 1 Timothy 2 and verse 4, Paul would say that God desires for all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. In 2 Peter 3 and verse 9, the Lord is not slack concerning His promises, some count slackness. But is long suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. In Isaiah 59, 1 and 2, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor is ear heavy that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. It's not God's fault if man is lost and fails to be saved. 
There's a passage in Isaiah chapter 5. I wish I had time, but the introduction can only be so long to try to grasp our minds, if you will. But there's going to be a figure of speech used there. And the first part of Isaiah 5, he's going to paint a picture for us, if you will. And when you see this picture, you're going to see God doing everything possible. Isaiah writes, now let me sing to my well-beloved, a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. He dug it up. He cleared out its stones. He planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in its midst and also made a wine press in it. So he expected it to bring forth good grapes. But it brought forth wild grapes. What more could have been done to my vineyard than I have not done within it? Why then, did, when I expected to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? And then if you drop down to verse 7, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant plant. He looked for justice, but behold, oppression. For righteousness, but behold, a cry for help. If you will again notice verse 4. What more could have been done to my vineyard than that I have done within it? You see, the truth is, God has provided everything that you and I need. Are you willing to cooperate with God in His desire to save you? You see, the truth is, is that everyone present here this morning, God wants to save you. God loves you. God cares about you. Now, when I go to Philippians chapter 2, here's what we're going to see. In verses 12 and 13 will be a command that is issued toward us. Verse 14 and 15 will address a concern that follows that command. And then in verse 16 will be the completion, the finishing of what God intended for us. Let's go now to verses 12 and 13 again. Brother Ethan read them for us just a few moments ago, but I want you to... Uh, have your attention drawn back to them. See them on the screen. Think about what Paul is saying to the Philippians. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. I want you to notice as we begin studying these couple of verses, there are three perspectives that Paul looks at with regards to their lives. The first one is their past. He says, as you have always obeyed, now, for me, that's a, a very significant statement. From the time that Paul arrived in Philippi, went down by the riverside and spoke with a lady named Lydia, 
converting her and her household, converting the jailer and his household, from that sprang a congregation that Paul said, you've always obeyed. And he says, not just when I was there either. I want you to notice, as Paul writes to the Galatians, can't say the same thing to them. You ran well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Can you imagine a congregation that's going along and doing real well and then somebody comes in and creates all sorts of confusion and strife and difficulty and Paul says, that's not who you've been. You've always been people who've done what is right. Then he goes to the present. He says, now... Much more in my absence. Much more. They've always obeyed, but now it appears that they have taken their obedience to a higher level. And I would suggest to you that probably indicates some great attitudes among the people. You know, when our children are sometimes playing, and you tell them not to do something, you know what that means, don't you? That's exactly what they're going to do. But as long as you're there and you're watching, those children are going to do exactly what you have told them to do. But you go out of the room, pull the door to, what's going to happen? You walk back in there in a moment, all of a sudden their eyes are real wide, they know they're caught, they're doing what they were told not to do. You know, as long as somebody's there. But Paul says, now much more in my absence. When Paul wrote the Colossians in chapter 3, verse 22, he says, Bond servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. You obey your masters even when they're not in presence with you. Not with eye service, not just to let them think that you're doing right, but do right all the time. That's exactly who the Philippians were. But then he looks to the future, the potential that is there. And he tells them to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Which brings me to a question. You know, whenever I read Scripture, I always try to ask myself questions that I believe are significant. And whenever I read these words, work and salvation, I know there are a number of people in denominational churches who are saying, well, that's just not right. They bristle with the idea that you would say that you have to work and salvation is involved. Now, why would they say that? Well, let me give you a couple of passages as to why. I don't ascribe to these people an insincerity. They read Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, and Paul says, For by grace you have been saved, through faith and that and out of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Or they go to Romans chapter 4, verses Verse 2, and then we'll take verses 4 and 5. And again, I'll remind you, there's much more in this context, but I think this will suffice. For if Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. 
Verses 4 and 5. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. You see, people read these passages and they come to the conclusion that works and salvation have no connection whatsoever. On the other hand, the Bible stresses that works are involved. If you go to the book of James, chapter 2, verses 14, 17, 20, and 24, here's what James writes. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says... He has faith but does not have works. Can faith save him? Or verse 17, Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Verse 20, But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Verse 24, You see that a man is justified by by works and not by faith only. Now here's the problem. How do you reconcile these teachings? How do you reconcile Romans chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 2, with James chapter 2? And I'll tell you how some have. Like Martin Luther, the famous reformer, he just totally discounted the book of James. In fact, he called it a straw epistle. The problem with many people is they do not read the context of well enough to notice that sometimes words are used differently. If you read Romans chapter 4 and Ephesians chapter 2, you'll notice a key word, boast. You will also notice that it's not reckoned as grace, but as of debt. The works that are described therein are works that we say God owes us. In fact, he uses the word wages in Romans chapter 4, verse 4. As if God somehow owes me salvation. And I will tell you, Scripture teaches plainly. God doesn't owe you salvation. He freely gives it to you. You didn't deserve it at all. Now, folks, that's an important teaching. On the other hand, there are works that God intended that we do. In fact, those people who quote Ephesians chapter 2 will quote verses 8 and 9 and rarely quote verse 10. For we are created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You see, works are necessary, but they're not sufficient. No man can be saved by works, but he must have works to be saved. I can't do enough, live a great enough life in order to deserve salvation. But in order to get salvation, I have to do what God tells me to do. And I will add another point that I think is essential in understanding this here. This is written to people who are already Christians. When he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, these people are Christians. Well, now let's step back then and let's just look at these words. The word work. 
This is, if you're looking at the original language, in the imperative mood, which means it's a command. It's not an option. It's something that God obligates us to do. Number two, it's in the present tense, which means it's something that is continually happening. So literally he is saying, you must keep on working out your salvation. Second word in that, not insignificant in itself, is the word out. Work out. I remember very vividly being in college, sitting at the feet of Brother Jerry Killingsworth in a class of trigonometry. And I can remember Brother Killingsworth standing at the board saying, all right, guys, let's burn it out. That was his phrase, burn it out, rather than work it out. But what he was saying is let's complete it. Let's put this problem on the board and let's work it out, or his terms, burn it out. He wanted you to finish it. Paul is talking about working out, completing your salvation. Don't stop part way. Your own. No one else can do it for you. You know, we live in a society today that we like to farm out a lot of the tasks that we may not want to do. You may have someone to change your oil for you in your car. You may have someone to clean your home for you. You may have people to do all kinds of tasks for you, but when it comes to your salvation, it's your responsibility. Not your mama, not your daddy, not your brother, not your sister. Not your son, not your daughter. It's your responsibility. Salvation. The word salvation to us is sounds like it's a present thing, but in truth it's in prospect. Let me give you a couple of passages that make this point. Matthew 24, verse 13. But he who endures to the end will be saved. Or a passage that I often use in talking with people who have gone back into the world. Hebrews 10, 36 through 39. For you have need of endurance, that having done the will of God, you may receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we're not those who draw back into perdition, but to those who believe to the saving of the soul. We don't want to draw back. We want to be saved. Salvation he's talking about here is in prospect when this life is over with fear and trembling. How confident are you does the Bible teach confidence? Well, sure it does. What's our confidence based in? How good I am? No. It's based in what he did and the success that Jesus had in presenting his blood to the Father and the providing of the means of salvation for every one of us. When I look at myself, though. I've got to be very careful. 
approach this with fear and trembling. Because 1 Corinthians 10, 12 says, Therefore let him who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. Don't just have a think so, have a know so. Luke 17, 10, So likewise, when you have done all those things which are commanded, you say, We are unprofitable servants. We have done that which was our duty to do. There's none of us who should go to God in prayer and say, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. I do this, this, and this. You ought to be proud to have me as the prayer prayed by the Pharisee. And then finally, God works in you. I don't think sometimes we see ourselves as a tool in God's hands. That God uses you and God uses me to do His work in this world. We tend to think God does His work directly. Or maybe God does His work through the elders. Well, sure He does. But He does His work through each and every one of us. I want you to listen to Hebrews 13, verses 20 and 21. Now may the God of peace, who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. He wants to work through you. Well, are we going to let him? Here's this command. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. Now, that's going to bring about a concern. You know what the concern is? Look at verses 14 and 15. Do all things without complaining and disputing that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in a crooked and perverse world or generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. How important is attitude? How important is it that you have the proper disposition of heart when you do what you do. Let me give you an illustration. Let's just take giving, for example. When it comes time to give to the Lord, does disposition have any impact on it at all? Well, listen to 2 Corinthians 8, verse 12. For if there is first a willing mind, then it is accepted according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. You've got a willing mind. God is not so much concerned as the amount that you are giving as he is the attitude of heart with which you give it. God knows how much you have. He knows what you can give. God wants your mind. That's the reason why 2 Corinthians 9, 7 said, So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. You can see that point. 
1 Peter 4 verse 9 says, Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. You give to someone, don't say, I wish I hadn't had to give that. You know how people feel when you give them something and you leave the impression in their mind that you didn't really want to do it, but you did it out of obligation? Let me give you an example. We have a great visitation program. Sometimes people are in the hospital. You knock on the door. Hello? Well, I got a card to come visit you. I don't know you, but I'm, I'm here to because I'm fulfilling this card. What does that person feel like? You're not important. You're just doing your job. In 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 10, Paul said about some of them, nor complain as some of them also complained and were destroyed by a destroyer. The grumbler here, as Paul will picture him, is neither harmless nor blameless. He's a discourager. He's a dark cloud. I want you to imagine, here God is giving a picture. I want you to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. And then the very next thing he brings up is, but I don't want you to be a person who grumbles, who complains, who disputes. Work because you love God and because you love one another. In contrast to that, though, he gives a picture. He says, among whom as you shine as lights in the world in this crooked and perverse generation. You do what is good for the right reason, you're going to shine. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16, he uses illustration of salt. And if you pick up with verse 14, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on the hill cannot be hidden. Nor do men light a lamp and put it under a basket. Put on a lampstand that it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Which brings me to the last point, verse 16. Holding fast the word of light that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I not run in vain nor labored in vain. That phrase, holding fast the word of life, is itself very significant. If you look up the word there for holding fast, if you're reading the original King James, it says holding forth. And let me tell you, the word means to grasp hold of something and not to let go. It also means with the idea that a person would hold something so tightly so others can see that. So both ideas are here in this word. Holding fast and holding forth. People ought to be able to look and see within us that we take God's word and we hold on to it tenaciously. We won't let go. But we also let others see that we're holding it forth. And then he calls it the word of life. What does that mean? Word of life. In John 6, the Lord had fed a multitude of people. And right after he fed them, he came back and he reminded them that some of you are here for the loaves and the fishes. You're not here for the, for the words that I'm presenting to you. Well, the Lord made it a little tough on people. You know what happened? People began to leave. 
began to go away. He looks at the apostles and he would say to them, Would you also go away? Here's the way Peter responded. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Peter held on to them. We're not going to leave. We found the truth. These are words of life. Sing them over again to me. Wonderful words of life. Go to 1 John 1 and verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. That's what we hold on to. It's what we hold out. Paul says that I may rejoice in the day of Christ. What is that day? That's the day of judgment. He says... The reason why I am pressing this so hard is so that you will understand and prepare yourself for the judgment day. I'm going to tell you, I often think about judgment day. Some of you may think about just part of what you do in life. But I think about giving account for preaching at this congregation. And on the day of judgment... What will the congregation at Bobby Branch be? And how will God look at us? How will He look at me for preaching? How will He look at our elders for the way they shepherd and guide this congregation? You see, all those are very important concepts. And Paul's goal was for the church to be ready to meet Jesus. There's a wonderful passage found in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 19. He said, For what is our hope? Or joy, or crown of rejoicing, is it not even you at the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ that is coming? Paul could be thrilled to look to the Thessalonians, to look to the Philippians, and know that he had a people that would obey not only in his presence, but also in his absence, and that were working out their own salvation with fear and trembling. No one wants their work to be in vain. How would you like to build a beautiful home, men? I mean, go out with your own hands. Nail the wood together. Build that beautiful home. And someone come up and say, well, we don't think we like it. We're just going to take a bulldozer and push it over. Ladies, how would you like to go and bake a cake? You work real hard on making sure that it's level, that it rises, it tastes good. You put all the icing on it, and then someone says, well, we don't think we want that cake, and you throw it over in the garbage can. You know what? I don't think most of us would appreciate that. Paul says, I don't want to have labored in vain. I want on the day of judgment you be ready to meet the Lord. Now let's bring this together. How far along are you on your spiritual journey? Have you begun? Now, here's the reality, folks. The majority of this audience here are already Christians, but there are some here that need to start their journey of faith. You need to become a Christian. And we're going to sing an invitation song to encourage you to respond. And you need to.
Have you dropped out? Now here's the reality as well. You may have fooled all of us, but you've not fooled God. If you dropped out of the race of faith and you quit living the Christian life, now here's an invitation to encourage you to be restored. Are you pressing on? If you are, God bless you. Keep on doing that. I want to end with one verse found in Philippians chapter 3, verse 12. Paul says, Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has laid hold on me. Are you ready to meet the Lord? Are you working out your own salvation with fear and trembling? If you need to respond, would you come as we together stand and sing?